0: This is the Future of Security Operations podcast, brought to you by Tynes. This show is dedicated to empowering SecOps leaders to reimagine how their teams work, so they can scale their security efforts and build a team that achieves more with less. In each episode, we'll learn from a security leader who has found a way to free their team from tedious manual tasks and remove the barriers that are preventing them from doing high-value strategic work that truly matters. We'll learn from their mistakes, distill their best practices, and leave you with actionable insights that you can immediately put to work with your team. I'm your host, Thomas Kinsla, COO and co-founder of Tines. Now, let's jump right into today's show. Hi, everyone, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Future of Security Operations. Today I'm speaking with URL Scan CEO, Johannes Gilge. Thanks for chatting with me today, Johannes. Thanks for having me, Thomas. It's always great to talk to you. For those who don't already know URLscan,
1: who is URLscan and what you do? scan is a SaaS platform. We call it, to people who don't know what it does, we often refer to it as a sandbox for the web. So if you're working in the security industry and you're familiar with malware sandboxes, the concept is pretty similar. With a malware sandbox, you're interested in finding out something about a file. You might already suspect the file is malicious. You might not know anything about it. And a malware sandbox provides a safe way of analyzing the file, getting some report, getting some output, and hopefully trying to figure out what that file is trying to do to your system and what it's about. And we basically try to take that concept and apply it to the web, meaning if someone gives you a URL and you don't know anything about it, you want to have a safe way of investigating that URL. You want to find out whether it's malicious. You want to find out what the content is on the website without necessarily going to it, visiting it. And then to take it a step further, obviously, you want to do those things, not just manually a one-off, but you actually want to do them at scale, repeatedly by automation. And scan is a platform that provides all of these features. So UOLScan can be used to analyze websites, get back results for those websites, structured information like the IP address is being contacted, the host names being contacted. You can download a screenshot of the website once it's finished loading. You can download a DOM snapshot of the website. So there's a ton of artifacts that you can extract from each scan of a website to facilitate whatever problem you're trying to solve. The other thing you can do with your scan is actually looking at the a list of historical results, so scans performed by other users, because these are often more interesting than just the scan that you just performed. So... To give you one example, if you scan a website and it gives you some kind of output that might be interesting, but the next question you usually have is about, has this website been seen before? Did it have different content when it was scanned yesterday, for example? And your also can be used to kind of peruse the history of a certain host name or certain IP address to really understand what it is you're dealing with. I
0: love it. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of... Have been a fan since the very start. But you're also used by like tens of thousands of people every single day. Can you give a give some of our listeners a scale of, if they're not familiar, a scale of the volume that URLs can see, users, yeah, traffic, I suppose?
1: We don't keep an accurate track actually. We try to keep a very low profile as far as profiling is concerned. We don't use analytics and or anything like that. We do have tens of thousands of users signed up. We do have probably in the tens of thousands of daily active users. We have almost 200 customers at this point. And all of these users and customers together submit an aggregate of half a million URLs every day. Now, the number of URLs is really not something that you should look at because it's really about the number of interesting URLs. And in some cases, it's about the one needle in the haystack uh, situation where you might have a user who submits 10,000 URLs every day, and those are not really interesting. But then you might have a user who just submits one URL every week, and that one might be The key to your investigation and the one thing you've been looking for. So nice. I'll try to
0: touch on that a little bit later. I know, uh, like URL scan has been mentioned in various different security reports around Fancy Bear and things like that. That uh, there's been some. It's a fantastic threat intel tool uh, for investigating some large groups. So, but can you tell me a little bit about what you were doing? I suppose before you started URL scan and what made you decide to leave and start start
1: a company. Yeah, absolutely. I studied computer science here in Germany at the university and uh, actually tried to do a PhD or started doing a PhD, which uh, didn't really work out, but uh, it's all for the better, I guess. I went to work for CrowdStrike right out of the university, basically. And at CrowdStrike, I worked in the threat intelligence team. So kind of the team that came up with all the fancy bears and bears and panda names and all the great marketing swag. So I worked in the threat intelligence team first as an intern, then as a regular engineer. And towards the end, I was actually managing the so-called threat intelligence automation team, where our job was taking in data sources, processing those, making those available to internal analysts, for for example, searching research, alerting, those kind of things. So that's kind of where I'm coming from, is this whole threat intelligence perspective of finding the needle in the haystack, finding interesting things, in incoming data, pivoting from one thing to another thing, and um, at some point, this led me to build all scan first as a side project. This was in late 2016. Build it out, very basic service, very basic UI. There was another service back then called URL query, which was okay, but it had a lot of issues from my perspective, or there were there were a lot of things you could have improved upon it. And so, URL scan was my way of trying to do that, and also trying to give back something to the community and shipping something that I could share with anyone that I know. So yeah, fast forward from late 2016 to early 2020, where Scan was still growing and there were thousands of users every day. And I kept getting more and more inquiries about commercial services from potential customers. So they were asking, could we get a commercial subscription? Could we get support terms? Could we get SLAs, all these things? And at some point I, I realized in order to do these kind of customers justice and to grow the platform, I have to do it full time because there's no way I can just run it on weekends anymore. So that's when I decided to quit CrowdStrike, as fun as uh, kind of working at CrowdStrike was, and that's when I started working on Yolscan full time.
0: I love it, and yeah, I remember the time. I remember URL queer, I remember the time when URL Scan was uh, just a side project, and then when I saw that you were moving out, it was uh, it was really exciting, and it's been really exciting to see the growth. I suppose. One of the things you said there was that the reason you started URLScan was to you wanted to give back to the community, and that I think the cybersecurity community—it's—it's it's a real testament to it that there's thousands of people that share indicators, there's hundreds of people that like build their own tools and give them back for for free or as a free community edition or free tier, etc. But why do you think it is that that the community is so is so strong and is is able to offer and able to build
1: a lot of free tools to to share with with other people in the same situation? That's a good question. I think there's a lot of people who are really passionate about doing a certain task, right? For scan, I know a lot of people personally that i talk to by Twitter every other day that are really into hunting fishing websites. So they have their own tooling. They do it for fun mostly. Some people do it kind of adjacent to what they do at work, but some people have a completely different background. They just do it for fun. They want to find fishing websites. They have a very specific background where they might be from, I don't know, Japan or Italy, so they have a unique perspective into the brands and and fishing landscape in that country that completely evades me or anyone in the U.S. Probably, and so doing that and realizing that you're one of the few people doing that because there's no vendor that is really doing justice to to identifying all these weird one-off fishing pages for these smaller brands and smaller countries. I think that's really empowering to people and it's really being able to say, I found these five phishing pages this week on Twitter and then getting a recognition from, for example, hosters or vendors or the brands in question is, I think, a big driving force for these people.
0: Yeah, it's really nice to see the community rally behind even some new joiners that will like share, you know, hey, I found these five or 10 phishing websites. It's really, it's really positive. A positive part of it. I thought that was really interesting that you said that like there's some people in like Japan who see something different than people in Italy than people in North America than people in and I've seen like you know specific campaigns targeting yeah uh, different banks in South America, different regions. Is that something you see a lot of or I suppose, how do you see the difference between the cybersecurity industry in various different day uh, in various different regions?
1: I think the problem is that all of these smaller countries they're not being served by the big cybersecurity companies. The big cybersecurity companies, they're all very Mm U.S.-centric, even though a lot of them are actually based in Israel, which is kind of funny, but they still have the U.S. market as kind of their main focus. And if you look at the U.S. market, there's 500 companies in the S&P 500, and all of these companies are probably bigger than most other banks and companies in smaller countries, right? So would you rather cater to a big U.S. company or a small Eastern European bank, which might get a phishing attack every now and then? So the distribution is really skewed towards the US, right? Where you have 99% of the phishing probably for big US brands because these brands have a huge presence online. They have a huge user base just by virtue of the size of the country and the economy. The users that you're targeting, they are wealthy or wealthier than comparative users in, let's say, an Eastern European country, right? So it makes a lot of sense to focus on these bigger brands for perpetrators, for bad folks And so I think that's the reason that a lot of these smaller countries, they're not being served right where you have anyone can detect the phishing page against PayPal, but try to detect the phishing page against some weird bank. And you don't know even what it is in some cases because you don't speak the language. Is it a bank? Is it a financial institution? Is it legitimate even? Right. What's the legitimate websites? All of these questions, they take a little bit of effort to understand.
0: And not only that, it's one of the features that you've released recently is the ability to suppose, scan from various different countries because even if you are able to detect or say, hey, this is definitely a malicious URL, you're not necessarily able to hit that website. A lot of the the attackers will make sure that it's only available from infrastructure within the country that's being targeted as well. So it makes it really hard if the, if the security industry, I suppose, isn't, or the security vendors aren't being able to support some of that sort of functionality that, that you've built out. In terms of, I suppose, cybersecurity maturity, then, do you think... Do you think it's the case that Europe is lagging a little bit behind or the US is just far ahead of the rest of the world?
1: I can't speak about all of Europe. I can definitely sure. speak about my native Germany. And I think we're severely lacking behind. Maybe we're lacking behind and it's okay because we're not being targeted quite as much, right? Going back to this example with like, there's PayPal and there's the huge banks in the US and they're obviously being targeted. But then you have banks in Germany. And they are being targeted. I see it every day. I have the kind of the local knowledge to identify phishing against the German banks like Sparkasse or whatever, which are everywhere in Germany, really. And Germany is a pretty wealthy country. So you expect that Uh, there's a lot of uh, folks that you can target here. But I don't see any investment in cybersecurity in Germany at all, basically. It's, It's kind of a negative thing to say, but I think we have out of almost 200 customers, we have one in Germany, which for a German company is kind of funny. Mm-hmm. And that that one customer is also not really German, but more of a European company. And so talking to people, there's definitely a few folks that I personally know in Germany that are building great products and building great companies, but they all focus on the US market because you look to the US and you have huge corporations and banks that are basically going out and telling their shareholders that they're going to spend a billion dollars just on cybersecurity over the next five years or so, right? so making that announcement, hey, this is the budget we have for the next five years, and by the way, we have to spend it because our shareholders demand that we spend it. That is a huge incentive for vendors to focus on these customers and provide products for these customers because they know that the customer not only wants to spend the money, they actually have to spend the money in some way.
0: Yeah, it really feels like, um, well, I suppose vendors, but people in the security industry are just missing a bit of a trick there that there's a lot of really smart folks in, in Europe, and if everybody's focused on the U.S., I suppose it feels like there's an opportunity to attract and hire and keep some very smart people in Europe happy. I think what I'm trying to get out there is that the security industry is lacking a lot of people. And if if people in Germany or people in in Ireland certainly we're not as focused on cybersecurity as we should be, there's definitely an opportunity to to hire a lot of uh, folks here who may be focused in another area, but could actually be potentially be in security. Along those lines, security today is still really hard. It's still really hard to attract people. And I think one of the challenges with attracting people is... That breaking in is actually sometimes a bit of a challenge that, you know, finding your first job in cybersecurity can be really hard. One of the things I love about URL scan is that it's simple to explain to anybody, but it's also powerful enough for that deep security professional that has 10 years of experience to appreciate the, I well suppose, the more granular and the more advanced features. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about how you decided to pitch it that way? Kind of simple, but not simplistic. What was the thought around, I suppose,
1: your motivation for creating a tool that like, was, was available for everybody? That is a really good question. I think one thing I realized working at CrowdStrike, where we built all these amazing tools internally for our analysts to use, right? We had tools for set up a keyword or something and get an alert or use this search UI and pivot and get all the context. And we had a lot of tools at our disposal, internal ones as well as external services. And what I realized over time was that We had all these analysts and we had guidelines about which services they should use for performing an investigation, for example. But even so, if a service was really hard to use and had like a negligible information content for most cases, most of them the investigations, the analysts might not use it, right? They might not query the service. They might not try to find information on that service because it's a hassle. They have to log in. They have to query something. The chance of finding something is really slim. So it doesn't really add to their report. So they just go to the big five sources where they know that they're getting information. And one thing I realized is you cannot force anyone to use something, right? Especially if it's not apparent that they didn't use it, right? So if I tell you, hey, you have to write a report on this indicator, on this incident, and basically you should consult all the data at your disposal and all the data source at your disposal, you will write the report. You might not consult all the data sources because you couldn't be bothered. And the report will just say there's nothing else to be found. And that's the end of it. And you can't force anyone to use something if they don't want to, if it's too cumbersome, if it's too bad of a tool. So the only thing you can do really is to make whatever platform or tool you're building fun to use, easy to use, with a lot of quick wins for the analyst. And that's exactly what scan tries to do is it's very easy to use. You don't have to sign up even. You don't have to log in. You can submit something. You get back the results in a few seconds. You search for something, you figure out if there's something to be found or not. And then and then you can just go back to your investigation.
0: Yeah, I love it. I think what you've, what you've described there, though, like that cumbersome process, that manual process of pivoting between five or 10 different tools, that's like, it's part of the real challenge today that I see or that we in time see with security, that it is too manual and that you're missing that fun part, that exciting part, that... Like the, aha, I just discovered that this is actually a phishing site. And now all of a sudden I feel, uh, I feel like my investigation is going a little bit better. I suppose, do you see for security, for security operations, how much of a role do you see automation playing, especially when investigating like phishing and uh, malicious websites?
1: It's absolutely crucial. There's no other way except automate as much as you can really. And, and for just the reasons that I've just mentioned, if you take a typical investigation, could be phishing, could be malware. It doesn't really make a huge difference. It's just different services. You have to query probably a dozen services to build up a picture of what you're looking at, right? You will definitely query something like Virus Total because that's what everybody's doing. You will query your alt scan either via search or by submitting a URL if you're talking about your alt. Uh, you will query other reputation services that you might have access to. Then you have your own internal services. And these are usually the ones where it gets really dicey because they are not as well thought out and they might be more noisy than the commercial data source you have access to. So maybe you have some kind of telemetry in, from inside your company and you want to query that as well to get an idea of, has this, you all been opened by anyone in my company and when was it opened and which department and how often all of these things. And now we're talking a dozen services and a dozen queries. And some of these queries are kind of hard to run because you have to run multiple ones in sequence and take the result from one of them and put it into the next one. And then you have to take that information, put it into Jira Ticket in a hopefully standardized format, and then move on to the next one. And by the way, you just waste basically your morning just doing one incident. And so automation is a way to standardize those, right? To level the playing field where you don't have the scenario where you have a senior analyst who has all these great automation shell scripts written on his machine, and he can bang out these kind of investigations in... 15 minutes with his scripts and he can write a standardized report form because he has everything. And then you have a junior analyst and he doesn't even know half the services and what they do and how they should be queried. And so automation can level that playing field and also obviously free up a lot of resource where the only thing you have to do is look at the gyro ticket. And hopefully it has all the information at that point for you to make a determination whether it's something you should worry about or not.
0: Yeah. Or enough information to be able to like go and do a little bit more of a deep dive into URLs, kind. Of, if you need to, and say, actually, let me. That looks interesting. I'm not 100 sure, but I can dive in and make that determination a little bit more quickly than having to, yeah, enter a URL, wait for five minutes, enter another URL, wait for another two or three minutes, and mm. and make that uh, make that determination manually. I suppose you have some incredibly advanced uh, advanced customers. I never like asking what are they doing wrong. What are people that you see doing wrong? But what are some of the things you see people that are doing it right compared to
1: some other folks? I suppose is a nice way of. Uh, Okay. Yeah. I think the only thing that people consistently get wrong or some customers consistently get wrong, and it's not really on them, I'm not trying to uh, blame them for it, is that some customers or some people think that you can squash all the problems with automation. So I think there's a mindset that there's a ground truth for this should be detected. This should be detected as phishing. This should be detected as an incident. And we want to get as close to that ground truth as possible. And we're trying to evaluate vendors for automation, for detection, and trying to see if they can get us as close as possible to that ground truth. And if we can evaluate and then put a number on that, right? And that is simply not how it works. First of all, there's no ground truth, right? It depends on perspective. If I send you a Google form and it has an input field called put in your email and put in your password, and then I send it to you, is that form bad? Yes or no? It depends on the context. Did I send that form to you with the instructions of really put in your password? And by the way, if you put it in, I will take that information and use your account information for something nefarious. Or is it, I don't know, is it something else, right? You can't really tell it. So there's no way even to get to ground truth. And then the other thing is, I personally really, really strongly believe you will always need humans in the loop when you do automation, Automation just serves to filter and serves to standardize and speed up the process. But the final verdict will always be humans. And that is one of the reasons people like skin so much is we don't just tell you, hey, we think this is bad or hey, here's an IP address, go have fun with it. We try to tell you as much human consumable information as possible so you can make your own verdict. If we tell you, hey, we think this is a phishing page you can look at the screenshot of the website and see why we might think so. And you might say, well, your scan kind is of clearly wrong here because this is definitely not a phishing page. This might even be the legitimate website. Or you might look at it and very quickly go, oh, yeah, looking at the URL or looking at the host name and looking at the screenshot, I can see how they made that verdict. So I can just click a button on the Jira ticket and, and, and escalate it or something like that.
0: Yeah, block that domain, that hash like search to see if anybody else received that email, take all those normalization actions. I love the idea that I suppose, yeah, you don't know whether something's right or wrong. I remember back in, yeah, when I was working in industry, we had a bunch of situations where people would like, yeah submit whatever company themed phishing websites and we'd analyze them and we'd send them for takedown and we'd be sending like dozens of takedown messages or hundreds of take takedown messages every single week. But we'd come back, we'd get replies back from like security vendors who are running like phishing tests. Being like this isn't malicious. This is a phishing test. I'm like, sure but like from my perspective it's abusing people's brands and trying to steal their passwords maybe it's maybe it's not malicious but i can't uh i can't tell that difference just by looking at that website so it's really hard to know uh like especially in an automated process really hard to know this is definitely bad this is definitely good that the line can get a little bit blurred uh sometimes yeah i suppose for those people that are you know starting out in that starting their security teams are a little bit less uh a little bit less mature than some of your, your larger companies or that that are supposed like leading security teams at, at kind of fast-growing companies. What, what's some advice that you'd give them that you see those more mature companies
1: doing? I would say if you're just starting out or if you had a bigger company and you have the mission to start out the security operation, security automation process, really is the first step would be trying to identify your objectives, right? What is your job? What are you trying to protect against? What are you trying to detect and then the next question is what is the size of your organization what's the volume of events you think you're going to get right if you're talking about emails how many emails are being sent by your corporate email service every day and then using that number and come up with a with a good estimate about if all of these emails are being analyzed and all of the y'alls and these emails are being scanned how many tickets are we talking about that we have to review every day and going from that the next step is figuring out what headcount you actually need because both go hand in hand, right? It's I think the worst situation is if you have a budget for buying services and buying products, but you don't have budget for headcount because it's unsexy and it's a different expenditure when you really need the headcount at a certain scale. So figuring those two out and not being caught blindsided if, for example, a security vendor sends you a, a ton of events, but you still have too many to manually review them, but then you figure out you just spend all the money you have and you don't have any headcount to, to actually review them. That is something you should kind of stay ahead of. And then really, obviously, trying to reduce the surface area of things you need to worry about. If you're talking about a brand being abused directly, there's a lot of tips I could give for customer-facing brands on how they can improve their posture so it makes it easier for companies like scan and for the vendors themselves to identify brand abuse. And then if you're talking internal security policies for your employees, It's really the standard stuff, standard advice of hardening, enforcing two-factor security authentication everywhere, limiting the amount of different services and things people have to sign in and trying to streamline everything so that anything that kind of strays from the usual way of doing things and the usual way of logging in, the usual way of using a service, anything that strays from that will raise a red flag, really. Yeah, employees already have a
0: pretty large cognitive load from their regular uh, regular job. It's really hard for them to suddenly become experts in spotting phishing websites. We have to do as much as we can to prevent them and to enable them to to do their job without imposing more restrictions on them. You mentioned that you may have some, um, or you have some tips for some, I suppose, customer facing brands to kind of reduce their reduce their footprint or reduce their target size. Can you go into that a little bit deeper? Maybe interesting for for some folks to hear.
1: Yeah. And and these are really things that we collected over the past few years in a very painful way of trying to keep track of brands. So one thing we do inside of the is we have a a database of brands that we try to uh, track and try to identify a brand impersonation against. And the difficulty of tracking a brand and tracking and finding a brand impersonation really differs from one brand to the next one. So to give an example, there might be a brand like PayPal, and I use it as an example because it's one of the most Frequently targeted brands out there and everybody has PayPal and everybody uses it. And they make it relatively easy for us to track them to track brand impersonation because it's the brand itself is really clearly defined. You have PayPal, which is on paypal.com. It doesn't have any other domains. It doesn't have any country specific domains. There's a PayPal login form, which should only ever appear on paypal.com, right? They probably have some kind of brand guidelines on how you can use the PayPal logo, even though probably uh, lots of people don't read those. And then on the opposite side of PayPal, we have banks. In, in Europe, there's a few banks, and they basically have different customer-facing domains, for more or less every branch out there, every branch office out there. It's using different domains. It's using different patterns of creating those domains. It's using different infrastructure to host those domains. So being able to say that, hey, this branch in this small country this is the legitimate website for this one branch and this is a phishing website it's almost almost impossible for these ones and so that's the complete opposite of what you should be doing so yeah really kind of narrow down your brand just use one host name one domain get your own autonomous system if possible have very clear branding guidelines where you say you can't this is the logo that we use on our brand side and if you want to refer to us you have to use some other logos so we make it very obvious that this is not PayPal, even if you put a PayPal logo on it. And that will get you a long way really of being able to detect brand impersonation in terms of phishing. The worst thing you can do from a personal opinion is if you have some kind of brand or some kind of product that customers can use, and then they can host it on their own domains and host names. Because at that point, it's almost impossible to teleport a legitimate website from a phishing website. To give you an example, if you have some kind of login authentication product, which is obviously one of the most critical pieces of infrastructure you can have is authentication, right? Logging in users, taking in their credentials. But then if you allow your customers to host those login pages on their own domains, it's. I think personally, it's a really bad situation because now you have the branding of the customer, you have the branding of the login provider, but it's Across dozens and hundreds of domains, and you don't know if one is the legitimate one for the customer, or if the customer's even a customer of that uh, login provider.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. I've seen this so many times in so many different situations, and I'm even thinking about our our own banking here in uh in times where our banking is, you know, whatever IrishBusinessBanking.com. That is absolutely <laughs> not the way to have a a login page for uh, for that. It's very hard to understand, but it also feels like that's something that like the I suppose the engineering teams within those companies should be 100% on the same page as the security teams, which isn't always the case, that everybody should be aligned and saying, we should be standardizing our infrastructure, we should be standardizing our brand, our tools. Uh, so yeah, it feels like something that, that a lot of people could be doing a lot better. I suppose when you think about security, the security industry has changed a huge amount over the last few years, even from yeah, from when you started URL scan. Where do you see it going? What do you think future security challenges might look like? And then how do you think the security teams We'll look in in maybe
1: two, three, five years' time. Yeah, I think, as I said before, one of the key aspects is going to be automation, both for productivity, for maintaining your own sanity, but also for having a standardized kind of base level of expectation of, of what everybody should be doing, right? And if there's manual steps involved, these manual steps still should go through some kind of template so you can be sure that if an employee is expected to do something that they have kind of a checklist in a Jara ticket or whatever, so they can actually do all of these things and, and there's no surprises there. And that way you can hire even junior folks and give them some kind of handrails to guide them about what they're expected to look at and what they're expected to consult. So automation is definitely key. Tines is, is, is a great way of tackling that part of the problem. And I've said it before, the way uh, that you guys build times is, And this is coming from an engineer. The way that you guys build Tines is exactly the same way I would have built it if I had the time and inclination, because it has to be generic. It has to adjust to different processes pretty quickly without involving the vendor. And in this case, Tines, you have to be able to talk to lots of different things, both internally as well as externally, and adjust them on the fly. So automation is key. As far as automation is concerned, I think there's still a few issues that need solving. One thing personally, as kind of one of the downstream vendors or one of the small cogs in the whole automation machine that, that I see as y'all scan is the problem that at some point you reach a point where you have to procure basically a dozen services to get a very basic, for example, phishing investigation, email investigation, uh, automation story going. And so it's okay if you're a bigger company because you have a government department and, and you expect it that everything takes a while and you have all these folks that do these things. But let's say you're a smaller company and you just have a couple of emails coming in every day and you still want to get the same level of investigative power and, and output, you can't really expect to go out to a dozen vendors. Some of them, they don't even have pricing on the website. They don't really want customers that are spending like 50 or 100 bucks a month. right? So they don't really want you. You don't really want to go through their processes, but you still want to use the services even if it's just five queries a day or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a huge opportunity for bundling or standardized billing, kind of a marketplace situation, if you will, to use those APIs. And there's definitely vendors that do that already. They have like a dozen APIs that try to answer a dozen different questions. So that's, I think, one way to do it. So yeah, it will be interesting to see how that specific problem will get solved. The other thing I is. I can see happening is that we see vendors that are really either starting out like you all scan with a specific mission or that uh, vendors that already have some kind of product and have some kind of API and data. And I hope that these vendors will really hone and craft their APIs for the automation use case where they try to identify how is our product and how is our information actually used in this whole flow. And we certainly had a learning process there. Where we put out something like a search API, which is very generic and very powerful. But in most cases, in the automation workflow, you don't really want to search. You want to have a simple yes or no answer, at the very least to proceed, or you want to have some kind of score. But that's really it. You don't need uh, additional information apart from a binary decision, whether you want to continue investigating that specific uh, indicator, for example. So yeah, tailoring to the automation use case will be interesting for these downstream vendors. And then lastly, one thing I definitely saw while working in the security industry myself, but also uh, see right now when talking to people is, I think managed services will be kind of a big, big power amplifier for smaller companies, right? Um, You mentioned that early uh, during the interview, you mentioned it early on, where you have to set up all these rules and you have to figure out what to protect against. And I think setting up rules and setting up good protections is easy if you have an incoming volume already, because you can actually write those rules. You can look at the existing attacks being performed against the organization. But let's say you're a small company. You're just starting out. You don't know anything, right? You don't know what you should be looking for. You don't know what you should be hunting for. You don't even have any examples where you could say, well, this was an attack. And the next time I know I can identify similar attacks based on this or this pattern, right? You don't have these patterns. And managed services from big cybersecurity companies, especially, they have the huge advantage that they have all the telemetry from all the different vendors. We definitely saw that at CrowdStrike quite a lot where just by virtue of position, an analyst could identify an attack at one customer and then go across the whole customer base of thousands of customers and very quickly say, well, this was targeted because it just affected this one customer or it was industry-wide, or it was limited to one specific industry vertical. And those are really interesting questions to answer. So unfortunately, if you will, for smaller vendors, the power of centralizing that kind of knowledge and data won't go away anytime soon, right? <laughs> 100%. It's kind of where I see a lot of these like SOC
0: Prime or Sigma or Yara rules or files that they're making it a lot easier to test and to validate. Even your, your MITRE attack framework where, where various different tools will align to uh, align to that or your MITRE defense framework. Uh, to be able to say, hey, we are actually defending against these particular attacks, but it's just so important to be able to verify. One of the things I really wish some along the lines of your sample antivirus files that you're able to, to pick up, it'd be great to have like some sample attacks in various different tools that you're able to say, this is what this attack would look like so that I'm able to understand it if I am actually able to detect it. I also think that's part of the fun of security operations and where it's going, that like it is constantly evolving, there is constantly new threats, and that there's a load of opportunity for anybody getting involved to learn, to grow, to like to go deeper and to, I suppose, to advance their career, I don't think there's any end, uh, even if, as we do automate and as we do get rid of those, I suppose, more boring manual parts, we're able to go deeper, we're able to de- detect more sophisticated attacks and we're able to, to bring some of the fun back into uh, back into security operations. Any kind of final words? It looks like that's pretty much all we're, we have time to cover, but if people want to follow your journey, I suppose, Johannes, and keep up with you, where should they go?
1: <laughs> that's a good question. Um, we have a Twitter account for your all scan. It's not super active. We have a blog, um, which is also not super active. But the upside is there's no marketing material on either of those. So the Twitter is probably a good place to start. Personally, I don't have a huge presence online. I, I haven't been outside of the country for the past two years, which is probably what a lot of people feel like right now. I hope I will be able to go to some security conferences at, at the very least uh, next year. But otherwise, if you want to follow ask and uh, what we do, and especially new features that we will release... I would definitely recommend the Twitter feed as well as the blog, if you're so inclined.
0: And if people sign up uh, to URLscan, or if they want to sign up to URLscan, they can go to the website. There's a free edition
1: that people can use as well? Yeah, absolutely. You can start using the website without even signing up. But if you sign up, you get a few benefits, like being able to use a bug submission interface, which is really handy if you need a a list of URLs. And also, if you sign up and you submit a scan, you will be able to find that scan later on because it's t- tied to your user account, right? So if you think you're going to use it, you're going to use UL scan repeatedly, and you want to have a history of what you submitted, definitely do sign up. And then if you figure out you need more API quota, then it's available on the free account. Just talk to us. We're very easy to deal with.
0: Awesome. Yeah. And obviously, you have a, some free API quota if people want to use it to automate some some tasks as well. It was fabulous talking with you and great, great catching up. And um, thanks again for joining. And
1: really looking forward to, to following your Alscan success in the future. Thank you, and yeah, right back at you. I'm really interested what you guys are going to build next.
0: Thanks for listening to the Future of Security Operations podcast by Tynes. If you enjoyed today's show, please do us a favor and leave us a review on Apple Podcast or your preferred podcast platform. For additional episodes, visit tynes.com/podcast. And if you'd like to learn more about how Tynes Automation Platform can transform your security operations team, visit tynes.com. Thanks again, and I'll catch you on the next episode.